0: On this World Communion Sunday, when followers of Jesus all around the globe gather at tables to remember his sacrifice, I'm struck by how fitting is the passage of Scripture that we're going to be studying together today. If you're just joining us this morning, perhaps, for the first time or for the first in a long time, we have been looking together at the book of Exodus at one of the defining stories of the life of God's people. And our study today picks us up in the story at chapter 12 and 13. You might find it helpful to open in your own Bibles to that portion of the scripture text. To catch up those who are just joining us today, let me try and set the context for what we're going to be exploring. For more than 400 years now, the children of Israel have been having a very rough go of it. Once a highly favored people during the time of the patriarch Joseph, once a very influential people, they have now descended to the very bottom rung of that society. They are now enslaved to ruthless masters who use them and abuse them. Their overlords are piling unmeetable expectations and demands upon them. They don't give them enough resources actually to complete the tasks and it's breaking the spirit of God's people. The overlords are distracting them with appeals to put their faith and their hope and their trust in the hands of all kinds of pagan idols of many kinds that dominate the society's life. And the rulers of Egypt make it in these various ways harder and harder for the Jewish people to even remember who they are. They're forgetting that they are actually children of a famous family, of a great father, a heavenly father, and heirs of a fabulous promise. By the time we meet them in Exodus chapter 12, the Hebrew people have largely lost a sense of all of the things that. Human beings in every era need to really survive, and more than that, to truly thrive. They have lost a sense of identity, belonging, purpose, and therefore hope. Which moves me to an observation I'd like to make for you and me in our time. It strikes me that in every single generation, God's children are ever in danger of becoming enslaved to some Egypt as it were. Some system of temptation, some some structure of distraction, some uh, force of destruction that inclines people to forget who they are and more importantly whose they are. This is not ancient history alone we're reading about here, this is our story too. It happened to the Israelites, it's happened to a lot of other people throughout time and we need the Christian communion. This is why coming together like we're doing today uh, and, and having the conversation we are having this morning is so important to us so that we might not forget who and whose we truly are. The good news in this particular story in Exodus is that God is seeing what is unfolding and is not hard-hearted about it, he's not apathetic about it. God feels deeply the wrongness of this and the pain of his people. And he has a heart to help those people, the scripture has been telling us in weeks past. So God, as you may recall, carefully prepares a messenger, somebody whose life story has in various ways equipped him to be the one that acts in this period of time, even as God, I would say as a sidebar, is equipping you for the role that he wants you to play in your family, in your workplace, in the society, in the life of our church. Nothing is wasted. No experience is ever wasted. When you think, gosh, it's all falling apart, it's going wrong or awry, keep submitting your life to God and he will use everything for his good purpose in the end. And so Moses gets equipped And and he, along with his brother Aaron, are sent back to Egypt from their place out in the desert of Midian, in the Arabian desert. They're sent back to Egypt to say to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, that the great God says, let my people go. Let my people go. Pharaoh is not phased in the slightest by that instruction. I... it's a little bit like a representative from the tiny island nation of Guam shows up in Washington, D.C., somehow gains an audience at the White House and tells the president, my Lord thinks you should reorganize your economy because people he cares about are suffering. And Pharaoh just scoffs at this. He, he, he thinks of himself as the Lord of all things. If Pharaoh has a a spirituality at all, it it, it involves giving service to all kinds of these mini-gods, these idols that represent different spheres of life, sex, wealth, health, happiness, uh, fertility, you, you name it. Pharaoh serves these things as we're always tempted in our time to give our main attention to these little godlets to these little allegiances, these little sources of hope and security and significance, and miss the presence of the one who can give us what they can never give us. Eternal life, true hope, the power for a different kind of loving and living. It's easy to become like Pharaoh. It's easy to to start making ourselves the center of everything and chasing after idols. It's always helpful and that's why we come together again in this communion on a regular basis Why we begin our service with a prayer of penitence or confession asking ourselves, who are the idols? What are the idols that we may have been giving ourselves to and how do we turn back towards the Lord? Well, to get the attention of Pharaoh and of the Egyptian power structure, Uh, God sends uh, a succession of plagues upon the Egyptians. And as Charlie and Mark did a wonderful job of unpacking for us in the study last week, each of the plagues that God sends is uniquely designed actually to address these different idols to show that he is more powerful in every sphere of of life than any one of these false sources of hope are. God is out to show everybody that is enslaved to the Egypt mindset and to all of us who get pulled in that direction in our time that if we're looking for a truly dependable center and power for our life, God is the Lord, the recurrent refrain of This recent part of Exodus is, I am the Lord. And again, we'll hear that often in the chapters to come. I wish that that hearing that kind of reminder or experiencing the great undeserved pleasures and graces of life or the unbidden plagues and struggles of life were always enough just to reorient us. I wish it worked that simply and dependably. Calamities do have this way of sometimes momentarily loosening our, our sense that we are the center of the universe or that the idols we may have been trusting on are trustworthy. I think of times in my life when tragedy has struck or where I failed badly or when I've had to face something about myself, you know, for a moment, for a season of time, I feel like I really see things clearly again. I'm, I'm committed to, to Christ in a fresh way again. And then, and then somehow God in his grace allows things to get better. And, and what do I do? I, do I rush towards him saying, Lord, you are, you are the center. Please occupy the throne of my life. I wish that were the truth at all times, but more often than not, I'm tempted to slip back into my old mindset and just grip my throne even more firmly. Well, this is the pattern in Pharaoh's life. As each of these plagues comes upon him, he and the the other Egyptians are, are sort of momentarily shaken up and start to turn towards Israel's God. And then God relents, and they just go back To their normal mode of things, they stop being vulnerable, they stop being malleable, they just hold on to power once more. Let's just pray that in order to really bring about the great transformation that God wants in your life and my life, that he will not ever need to resort to doing the kind of thing that he went on to do in the life of Pharaoh and the Egyptians when those previous messages failed to get through. You can read all about this in Exodus chapter 12 and 13. The idea simply is to finally free his people and maybe even to liberate Pharaoh and the Egyptians from their idolatries. God sends a 10th and final plague and this calamity is a whopper. This calamity Blows away all of the other uh, situations and circumstances and difficulties that have been sent before, and it is a plague so devastating that it has to produce change. Have you ever heard the statement that freedom isn't free? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that one. I was, uh reminded of it, of that idea recently. This week I opened up in my uh, email inbox and I received this advertisement that was there for the the Chase Bank Freedom Unlimited card. Oh, it caught my attention. I I delete a lot of things, but this one, there was something about this one that caught my attention. I I saw this. I, I said, really, really? I can conveniently apply right now. I don't have to wait another moment. There's no annual fee and I will earn $200. What a deal. Freedom unlimited. I started then to look a little closer. I started to access some of the links and read the fine print. I found that I could apply now for sure, but only by filling out a really long form. that that asked for all kinds of personal information that would go out to somebody in some location I did not know about. And I began to go, "Ooh, I don't know how comfortable I am with that. I discovered that while there's truly no annual fee, there are a lot of other fees. There are all kinds of advancement fees and late payment fees and return payment fees and balance transfer fees. I learned that after an initial period of freedom, my card will come with a nearly 30% 30% annual interest rate on unpaid-for purchases. And yes, I can earn that free $200 as long as I'm willing to spend $500 in the first three months. Freedom isn't free. Now, I, I, I'm not trying to say this is a rip-off. If you work for Chase Bank, my sincere apologies if I seem to be maligning your work, this might actually be a very good deal when you consider all of the benefits that that the Freedom Unlimited card would bring if you're willing to pay the related price. And if you think about it, it kind of works this way. In lots of spheres of life, uh, you probably know people who are free to wear skimpy clothes in the summertime that expose their midriff. There are people that have the freedom to do that. We don't like those people, but we know those people that look good that way. Um, But there was a price that was paid for that freedom. There were Pilates classes. There were planks. There were crunches. Uh, There were sit-ups. I've been watching the Ryder Cup this weekend. Any of you catch any of the of the golf tournament going on. You know, I just, again and again, when I watch these pros and the perfectly free grace with which they swing that golf club with such fluidity and power, it's just amazing. I think to myself, what a gift they have. But it's not just a gift. The freedom to do what they do came as a result of 10,000 more hours of practice than I've ever put in. Uh, It's often said on Memorial Day or on the Fourth of July weekend that freedom isn't free. It comes because somebody pays a price for it. And the larger the freedom, the larger the price, or conversely, the bigger the bondage, the bigger the price that must be paid to free somebody from it. And if you and I don't get that principle, then we never get how life really works. If we're not teaching this to our grandchildren and our children, that that freedom isn't free, uh, they're just going to miss out on one of the fundamental ways that that reality works. They, they, They won't actually be Amazed by grace if they don't learn this foundational principle first. And if we don't understand this principle, we will not understand what happens next in the book of Exodus or the even more magnificent event to which the story we're going to study is pointing us. Exodus 12 begins with these words. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. Now i would never noticed this line before reading the story. Um, but as I think about it, it's a big, big turning point. It's a significant message. God is effectively saying, Moses and Aaron, I want you to pay attention. I am about to say and do something so big that I want you to reset time according to it. I want you to reorganize your calendar. Just throw out the old calendar. Establish a new one on the basis of what I'm about to do right here. And then God goes on to give the instructions that will become the basis for what will become known as the Passover, the fulcrum of Jewish history. Um, In the remainder of chapter 12, God goes on to tell his people, I want you to select a a young male lamb or goat, if you can't afford a lamb, that is without defect. I want you to go out and find the best, the purest, the most beautiful you can, and I want you to sacrifice him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And then, take the blood from the sacrifice and I want you to paint it across the top of your door and down the sides of that door frame. And, and I want you to mark your household as living beneath the blood of the lamb. This you shall do. For God goes on to say on that same night that you do this, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. By that he means I will show how powerless they are What what a false source of security and hope they are. And and how wrong it is for Egypt to put their trust in these things. For I am the Lord, he says. I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. by these three stripes, think of that, three blood marks, you will make the message clear that the people of this house live with their hope in the blood of the Lamb and the Lord who has commanded them. They have made a sacrifice to atone for their sins and I the Lord God will spare them when just as Pharaoh once ordered the death of all of the male children of Israel, I exact that same punishment on the firstborn of Egypt. I've shown Pharaoh such grace. I've shown the Egyptians such grace. I've made them one of the great nations of the world. I've sought to communicate in lesser ways with them. I've given them multiple chances to turn but now I'm going to bring the justice that that they must experience to pay attention to me. So as some of you know, you know personally, there is no pain that comes close to losing your child. Nothing approaches it. It's therefore not at all surprising that when the angel of the Lord passed over Egypt, and took the life of every firstborn not living under the blood of the Lamb, it made an everlasting imprint on the Jewish people who saw it happening, and it finally changed Pharaoh, and it finally altered the behavior of the Egyptians momentarily, as we'll see next week. The Bible says that during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, go worship the Lord as you've requested. In Exodus 12, God says this. This day, you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance and for centuries, dare I say millennia, after that instruction, the Jews fulfilled the order, still are, whether wandering through the wilderness, whether settled in the promised land, whether in exile in Assyria or Babylon or someplace else, the Jews gathered annually around the table to remember how God saved and freed his people through the sacrifice of a precious lamb, a lamb without defect, how God saved them through the sacrifice of the son, of sons. It was the sacrament that reinforced their sense of identity wherever they went. It was the sacrament that helped to shape a sense of belonging and of a sacred purpose in the world. It was so often the thing they returned to when they were struggling to find hope. Every year, and wherever they happened to be, Jews came to the Passover table to remember that their salvation and their freedom had only come at a very very great price. I was in New Jersey and 19 years old when I attended my first Passover. My college roommate was Ira Walmer and he brought me home with his family to celebrate the Passover. And I went through the ritual with the family as they told the story. As they they broke the bread and lifted the cup of redemption that's part of the Passover celebration. And it hit me as a brand new Christian at that point myself that the Passover was not only a statement about God's presence with the Jewish people. It was also A pointer. A pointer. The blood of the lambs of Israel, the blood of the firstborn of Egypt, these were pointing us towards a hill outside of Jerusalem where another lamb without defect, another precious son would be sacrificed. This time, however, It would not be God giving human beings the punishment, the justice they deserved. It would be God taking upon himself the pain and the loss and the weight and the wrath. It would be God giving himself in a sense, the justice that through the paying of that price could set people free. Why? Why would he do this? Because the price required to free human beings from bondage to sin and death, something so big as sin, And the power of death, the price required to free people was so large that an ordinary lamb, a merely human son, not even millions of them could suffice to be enough to give us freedom unlimited. And so God would have to do it himself. And the sacrifice that was made on that cross was so big that it paid the price to free not just one people, but all people who would dare to put their trust in Him. All people who would choose to live beneath the hope that is the sign, the blood of the Lamb. The brilliant Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said that the chief problem of humanity is that we have forgotten with what a great love we have been loved. We have forgotten what a huge price has been paid out of love for us and by whom. So many of us are mastered in life by anxiety or fear or a sense of worthlessness. But if we would only remember God's love and his sacrifice on our behalf, if we would only let him become and the reality of that love become our true center, it would fill us with a new sense of our identity. It would give us a feeling and experience of belonging and a purpose and a hope even over death itself. That no adversity, no adversary you will meet in this life can ever overcome. So, as we come to the communion table today, I invite you to think deeply for yourself about how great a price God paid to purchase your freedom from the penalty of sin and death. And with what a great love you have been loved and are loved. Try to take in more of it today. Let it into the center of your being. And strengthened by that, I challenge you, walk out of Egypt Turn your back on whatever idols you've been giving yourself to, putting your trust in. Walk away from whatever false worldviews, whatever lies, whatever destructive patterns may have bound you in the past. And I urge you as as you're going on this renewed journey, bring somebody with you. Invite somebody else on the journey towards greater freedom in their life and be their encourager on the road because it's a long road to the promised land. It's a difficult journey. We need companions. And let the massive sacrifice that Christ has made, the one and only sacrifice that you will never have to make, thank God, let that great sacrifice Inspire us to the smaller sacrifices that we do need to make to show our spouses, our kids, our enemies, our neighbors, that there's a great love moving in this world. And it's reaching out for them too. And know that wherever you walk in the days ahead, You're not going alone, for the Lord God Himself goes ahead of you. Listen to how chapter 13 of Exodus concludes. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea, upon whose shores we'll meet again next week. And by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel. They could keep moving. They could get closer to the fulfillment of all God's promises for them. By day or by night. Please bow your heads with me. Thank you, God. Thank you that you are our light, that you are in some sense the road, the way, the truth and the life. Thank you for the blood of the lamb, for the price you paid to purchase our freedom for all of the possibilities of new and more beautiful life ahead of us. If there are any of us who have never before truly opened our hearts to you and accepted the gift of forgiveness you offer, we do that today. We acknowledge you as our Savior and we ask you to be Our Lord, the one on the throne, the life at the center, in the name of Jesus, Jesus the Christ, we humbly pray. Amen.